Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. When you can read and write, you just take it for granted. You just think everyone can. And a lot of people are so good at uh, hiding it that you don't know that they can't. But it impacts on their life extraordinarily. Like, um, people can't get jobs, they can't get a driver's licence. You know, as I said, they can't read the prescriptions. We're hoping that we can get enough people in a community to become more literate in English that they'll value learning. That's what we're trying to achieve. So it's not actually about getting individuals literate. It's about changing that characteristic that could possibly be a community of low literacy to a community that values learning. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The gap in literacy standards between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians remains an issue many are yet to find an answer to. And while there have been improvements made to the literacy of children, adult literacy levels remain low in communities across the country. But how can literacy standards affect our health? And what impact can literacy have on the effectiveness of health messaging? Someone who has been at the forefront of improving literacy standards among Indigenous Australians for over three decades is Uncle Jack Beetson, a former Executive Director of the Tranby College in Sydney and the Australian Chair of the Pacific Association of Non-Government Organisations. Uncle Jack has dedicated his life to improving outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. These days, Uncle Jack serves as Executive Director of the Literacy for Life Foundation. Established in 2012, the organisation's adult literacy campaign involves training local community members as teachers and focuses on the community becoming self-sufficient to create long-term change. Last month, they began working with top-end communities as part of a new initiative designed to improve health outcomes in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uncle Jack, welcome back to Speaking Out. We'll get into your work with the Foundation shortly, but I wanted to begin by getting you to share a bit about your own life with us. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about what it was like for you growing up in Western New South Wales. Yeah, it was um, was funny, really, like growing up. You know, back in the in the sixties, I was born in nineteen fifty six. So, um, growing up in the sixties was pretty tough times out there. Um, you know, racially, economically, it was probably my first experience of social isolation, if you like. And in a lot of ways, I felt that Aboriginal people have, have been socially isolated and economically isolated, for that matter, for a long time. But I, I grew up in a period where, you know, where people needed permits to to get a job. They, you know, we weren't allowed into the picture theatre until all the non-Aboriginal people had gone in before us. Swimming pools weren't readily open to Aboriginal people to, to go to during the summer. It was just a funny time or, you know, not funny and it was a lot of fun. It was just a, a really strange time to be growing up in a country where your forebears had you know, lived there for thousands of years and then all of a sudden we were right at the bottom rung of the of the social order. Spent, I, I had a lot more dinner times than dinners. And it's, you know, it's also on public record that, <clears throat> that I was abused as a child twice, not by a family member and not by Aboriginal people, but two non-Aboriginal people. So, you know, when, when you come through life, those things, they certainly go a long way to building your character. And I've often thought most of my life's been spent in the human rights area, either here or overseas, regardless of where I've been. And I think it's those, my life in the early stages was probably the thing that set the tone for my life in that regard. And I see education as probably one of the most basic of all human rights. But as I say, you know, that, those times weren't tough. I, I was only telling my son the other day, you know, my old uncle, whenever people talk about the good old days, <laughs> he used to say, there's no such thing as the good old days. You know, times would be tough for them, probably tougher than them than they were for me, but you know, like we got on, and I, I don't look back upon those days with a great deal of sadness. I, I um, actually look back on them quite fondly because it was it was also a time when Aboriginal people were re- very solid, very united with each other in, in our struggle back then. Even as a kid, I can remember that. Mm. And during my young 
young years in England. I, I left England when I, just before I was 15 as a political refugee and I always used to introduce myself in Sydney as a political refugee because I left England after a very severe bout of um, police brutality. But while all that happened, I guess, you know, I, I came from a family that was, my father was a very, very tough old guy. We weren't allowed to be victims and so so I didn't, I didn't allow myself to be that. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but anyway, I, I didn't. And I think it's what sort of got me through now. My mum used to say she was a, an incredibly strong woman, my mother, and she used to always say, you know, son, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I guess, you know, at my age now, I guess she was right. <laughs> yeah. When you look back through your period when you were growing up and, and perhaps even in the early times when you were in Redfern, who were the people who influenced you or helped shape your thinking? You obviously were very intuitive about the circumstances around you, had an innate understanding of what was wrong and what was right. But were there particular people whose worldviews or philosophies or wisdom shaped your thinking? Look, there's been so many because I think everybody influences you in, in one way or another and they influence different aspects of of your of your own thinking and and of your own developing values and philosophies, but look, just to name a few, I think Auntie Isabel Flick had a huge impact, a huge influence on my life. Kevin Cook, you know, he he had a, an enormous impact on my life. He was one of the most incredible people um, I think I, I've ever known. He guided me through a lot of rough times. You know, when when I was you know a young Aboriginal man, my mid twenties. There was a lot of rough edges on me, and uh, he didn't set about smoothing those rough edges, but he he nurtured me through those things without ever being critical of things that I was doing. He, he encouraged me to find my own space, and it often goes back to an old uncle, my mum's brother. He used to always say, he had this saying, and when he said it, I, I didn't really know what he meant at the time, but he used to always say, the sun water finds its own level, and... It was like you don't have to pressure yourself or push yourself or stress yourself out about things. Things will fall into place. And, and I think Kevin Cook picked that up. He, um, Whenever I'd, I'd do something, I'd go to a meeting with him and, and things didn't work out the way I wanted and, you know, I got aggressive or angry in the meetings and stuff like that. He'd always come back and say, how do you think that went? <laughs> and now when I think about it, he should have just said, look, Jack, you just we're going to chuck you in a too hard bus. It'd be best if you just took off, you know. And uh, but he never did that. He always would do that. He'd sit down. And years later, people started talking to me about critical reflection. And I don't think Kevin had that word. I don't think he knew that terminology. But that's what he was doing. So he had an enormous influence. People like Gary Fold, um, you know, for other reasons. You know, I think Gary is one of the best orators I've ever known. You know, hanging around Gary and you know, not considering a friend and, you know, always have done. But he had a big influence on my life also. So so there's lots of people, there's a whole heap of people I didn't didn't mention, you know, that I could go on forever really because so many people did. Linda Burney was one that um, certainly had a big influence on my life. We've been friends for a very, very long time. You know, she's certainly someone that, you know, role models a lot of good stuff for, for Aboriginal people and in particular for for young Aboriginal women, you know. She gives those young people a lot to aspire to. You know, Kenny White, you know, I've known Kenny a long time. So, yeah, there's been a lot of influences, Larissa, including your dad at certain times. Oh, that's lovely. And what a pantheon of stars you've just mentioned and so lovely to sort of remember some of them who many people won't have heard of, but people like Kevin Cook were profoundly influential in the Aboriginal Mm. community. What observations did you make about the literacy skills of your family and those in your community that's obviously shaped your incredible passion around the importance of education? I guess in many ways I was really surprised. Look, I certainly have family members, direct family mem- family members and, and, you know, and others, you know, our extended families and, and where many of them have very low literacy. But you know, the one thing I have discovered over the years, and, you know, it was a bit of a surprise to me, but, you know, my dad's from Bree Warren and I consider myself a Nyingba man from there. Mum's a Wongabong woman from Ningen, but just to 
when we did the campaign in Brewarrina, and to discover that 70% of Aboriginal people 15 years and up have low literacy, and that means they've got dysfunctional literacy, and some had very low literacy. So to, to find that out was quite a shock, really. And, and look, I'd worked at Tramby for, you know, 20 years of my life. You'd have thought, gee, you know, I'd be right across all of that. But but it was a really harsh reality. And, and when you go into communities, it, it doesn't actually get much better than that, no matter where you are. I mean, in some communities, it gets far worse, of course, because uh, in many of our communities, literacy is not a second language. Uh, it can be a, an eighth or ninth language. So having, you know, functional literacy skills in some of those communities is um, sometimes quite rare. Just want to go back a bit. You talked about the incredibly racialised environment that you grew up in and, you know, a quite serious assault by police that led you to the city. But the city at that time that you came had its own sort of personality and issues. What was your reflection about how different life was in the country and the city for blackfellas? Well, when I first arrived in Sydney, there was a fairly large degree of anonymity. Um, coming from a town of 2,000 people to, to a city back then was, I guess, 3 million in Sydney. That was one of the first things. But then once you started to, you know, hang around in the Aboriginal community and, and catch up with your cousins and all that sort of stuff in Redfern and other parts of Sydney, you soon become aware that the, the racism, it wasn't just a few people, it was a whole lot of people copying it at that time, you know, from police and others, you know. Um, there was a great racial divide. And in saying that, in amidst all that, you had those people that were very supportive of Aboriginal people and assisted in our struggle, you know, in, in terms of setting up, you know, medical services and legal services. Hal Wooten, you know, springs to mind pretty quickly when he certainly played a major role in establishing uh, the legal service back in the early 70s. And there's a lot of supporters, but there's, there's also this big racial divide. I think just coming from the country as a country person, I found it really hard because I got off the Greyhound bus in Elizabeth Street and just the fact that I couldn't really see the sky, you know, like that frightened the life out of me. Just the tall buildings and the traffic going everywhere, even back then, those things were, they certainly were a shock. But one of the things I'll never, ever forget is because when you're in the country, if someone's walking past and you're looking for a direction or you just want a bit of information, so I'll make, you know, I'll go here, I'll go there, how do I get here? And when I did that in Sydney, people rushed past me like I was, you know, going to mug them or something. <laughs> and that was a big surprise to me. I'll never, ever forget that. You were, of course, heavily involved in Tramby College. It's a big part of your legacy. What drew you into working in that area? How did you come to work there? And when you look back, what are you most proud of? Yeah, look, I went to Tramby as a student. I often said to people, you know, I was a student and I, I started working there and never left because I probably couldn't get a job anywhere else. But ultimately I did, yeah. But look, one of the things I'm proud of there, and, and they they are a, a continuing asset and legacy, I think, at Tramby, and, and that was during Kevin's time as well. And, and, you know, I've got to acknowledge that Kevin Kevin supported ideas. You know, he's, he never, ever tried to pull an idea you had a party and say, yeah, that's a great idea, have a go at that. And I can remember when they were mainstreaming education and people had to get accredited courses and accredited certificates and stuff like that. And then then it was getting very pushy to the point where certificated courses were going to be put into the mainstream so they'd either go to TAFE or somewhere else and just become part of that system. So what what we did at Tramby... Um, during my time, um, and, I, and, you know, I, I did drive this, was we actually put together our own diplomas and advanced diplomas, and uh, we got them accredited independently through VTAB at the time. And that, to me, was probably the biggest legacy because those courses still exist. And, and I should acknowledge Mick Dodson because Mick was the one that put together the curriculum around, you know, the, the paralegal studies, which ended up a diploma of legal studies over at Tramby and I'll never forget I went <laughs> when Mick was um, launching it and he said and it was in the Human Rights Commission in Sydney and 
He said, unfortunately, we haven't got anybody prepared to take the course and run it. And I was sitting there. I said, no, nah, brother, we will. Trandy will do it. When I got back, I said to Cookie, we're going to run this, this legal place. He said, you're going to be kidding. He knew before I got there. He said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> we haven't got the money to do that. And I said, oh, we're going to have to try and find it somewhere. And we did, and it's still there, you know. So that is those things, and that's how Trandy was, you know, and, and that's how Kevin was. Like He never said, oh, well, we're not going to do it. We can't do it. We're not going to do it. And he, he said, look, we'll just have to find the money somewhere because you've gone and put us out there now. So thank God for people like him and, and Mick, you know. Like, that was an incredible cause. Like, it had so many electives to it. I think there was about 80-something subjects. You didn't do them all. You got to choose what you did. but And that's why a lot of people got a bit afraid of it because there were so many subjects in there that you could choose from but but it, it was great and and so that's a legacy the buildings are another legacy you know i know how hard both me and kevin worked on getting the money and and getting those buildings together and <clears throat> there's a few things there but I, I think the curriculum that certainly stood the test of time and i also think those buildings and they will stand the test of time and i even hear people today say oh they were trams the other day the, those buildings are amazing and they are I want to get on to Literacy for Life in a minute, but just before we do, I know you've never done the work you've done to get accolades, but in 2000, it's worth noting you were the recipient of the United Nations Unsung Hero of Peace Award for your work in reconciliation. What did that award mean to you and your family? Oh, look, it was extremely humbling, um, to be honest. Um, you know, when the UN names 12 people in the world and you're one of those, the first thing you start thinking, well, you know, why me and how me, I guess. Because when I actually accepted the acknowledgement, it was really funny because the guy that came to do a film clip, he got off the plane and I thought he was just coming up to interview me about the environment. I was up on the mid-north coast. When he got off the plane, he said, oh, Jack, do you know? And I'll never forget his name. His name was Stephen Curry. And I've got the worst memory for names of anyone. And uh, that's why I love being a black fella because everyone can be just brother and sister. Or uh, you don't have to remember anyone. And, but I always remember his name. And he said, um, have they told you why I'm here? And I said, yeah, you're here to um, talk to me about, you know, environmental sustainability, which I thought was strange anyway. I was thinking, you know, why would they want to talk to me? There's so many other people that are more, far more qualified and experienced. And he said, well, Jack, I'm actually here. He said, I better tell you. Is I'm actually here because you've been named by the UN as one of 12 unsung heroes in the world for dialogue among civilisations. And I said, listen, if you're going to start that, you can get out of the car now. I said, I, really, I, I did. I'm being really serious. And uh, I said, mate, you can get out of the car if you don't start that sort of talk. And, and uh, he said, no, Jack, I'm really serious. And he ended up ringing um, the UN office in Sydney and um, said, you better talk to Jack because he doesn't believe I'm here. I was a kid. <laughs> and, uh, so then we went out to the farm and did the thing. But look, it was really humbling, but I accepted it on the basis that I could accept it on behalf of anyone and everyone that had ever had anything to do with my life because it belonged, whatever that acknowledgement was and what, it, you know, I don't know where you put value on those things, but but for me, it was it belonged to all of us. It belonged to all those Aboriginal people that had, that had suffered and had been, you know, treated very unjustly over the years. And everyone that had contributed to any of the ideas I have, you know, like sometimes, Larissa, you know, you, you might be the one that's actually pushing the idea and promoting the idea or whatever, but I don't know where those ideas come from, you know, and, and I think a lot of people contribute to our thought processes and they share a lot of stuff with us. So, so I accepted on that that basis but honestly it was a really very very humbling you're listening to speaking out it just comes down to showing sharing you know respecting the world from an indigenous perspective on abc radio this is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berend and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well.
Tonight on Speaking Out, I'm joined by Uncle Jack Beetson, a lifelong campaigner for the advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uncle Jack has spent the past few months working to improve literacy standards in Indigenous communities in an effort to improve health outcomes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Stay with us and we'll return to the conversation shortly. Right now, though, some music, this time from Central Australian musician Frank Yammer. Here he is with She Cried.
That's Frank Yammer with She Cried. The song is taken from his newly released compilation album, Jerkapa, The Story. Let's return now to Uncle Jack Beetson, director of the Literacy for Life Foundation. New research has linked low literacy levels with poor health outcomes in Indigenous communities. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, the issue has been given renewed focus with concerns health messaging about the dangers of the virus has not been understood. Uncle Jack, Literacy for Life, tell us a bit about the organisation for people who might not be aware of its work. Yeah, Literacy for Life is an adult literacy foundation and it runs using um, a campaign model. So it's about, it's not about going in with a course and, and, and just teaching people in the course. This is around, it's a community development model based on a campaign approach. So what we do is we go in at the request of the community, if they ask us and, and, uh, and request that we come and talk to them about a campaign, then we do that. And if once we get funding to, to be able to do it, which is always very difficult, but, you know, we've managed to keep going now for about nine years with a lot of um, government and uh, non-government support and private donors and so on, and, and obviously Multiplex being the biggest one of those. We, we actually go in and work with the community. So we, we actually train local people in the community to do all the work. So we go in and work with them, train them in the model. The model comes from Cuba. It's called Yossi Puedo, or Yes, I Can. And, and we, we train people in the model and, and, and they do the work. And I think that's what makes it work, regardless of where it is. Over 10 million people have become literate globally using this method. So it's really about getting the local community to engage with you in the process of, of getting a campaign up and running. And that means that everybody in the community, Aboriginal people, non-Aboriginal people, uh, shopkeepers, the, the legal system, everything, everybody um, comes in and supports the campaign, encourages people to join it. And then the local people do the work. And what, what makes it work is two things. The local people doing the work and the other is local people taking ownership of the campaign. And, you know, there's no magic bullet here. It's just, it really is as simple as that, is that, you know, I often say to people, when Literacy for Life goes into a community, actually goes into a hand on the steering wheel and the other hand on our exit strategy. Listening to you talk about the way that Literacy for Life operates, it seems like without you ever saying the word, there is a basic fundamental principle of self-determination in that. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it, it's absolutely critical that Aboriginal people are involved in the solutions, regardless of what we're trying to solve, regardless of the outcome we're trying to get. It's really critical that Aboriginal people are part of that process, you know, and, and heavily involved in it and actually have some ownership of that particular process. From your work working with adults uh, through these literacy programs, what have you seen uh, sort of anecdotally that shows the impact low literacy has on someone's life? It has an enormous in- impact, not, not just anecdotally, but we, we have, you know, evidence now because we've been monitoring and evaluating it all the way through. But it certainly has an impact on people's health. You know, it has a, an impact on their engagement with the criminal justice system. Kids, because their parents are reading and writing, uh, are far more likely to attend school. And and some of the people that are working, either working with us or are students with us, um, go on to employment. So those things have an enormous impact. Uh, people do get their licence. And one of the things that 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 we've noticed, and is that in the towns where we're in New South Wales where we've been working, the actual membership of local Aboriginal land councils has increased. Now, to me, that actually means that people are beginning to become active citizens as a consequence of learning to read and write. And I think that's critically important because in many of our communities, there's never going to be jobs for anybody unless there's a real concerted effort by government to to either develop the social enterprise or create 
industries out in those communities that are not held to ransom, you know, by the weather or or other, you know, national disaster type things. So so those sorts of things, without that happening, there, there won't be a lot of jobs. But, you know, paid employment is one thing. Being an active citizen actually puts you in a, in a spot where you can have some impact on, on your own destiny. And I, I, for me, I think that's one of the bigger things that's come out of this is that people are now participating more regularly. The other thing that you just mentioned, and I'd love to drill into it a little bit more because I know you've been uh, looking at this a lot recently, is that link between literacy and health. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Every community we go into, we work very closely with or we partner with and health, a health organisation. So when we were over in, so, so when we started out in Wilcannia, we worked very closely with the health service there, Maramar. We also worked very closely in Burke with the, um, yeah, and they were a major partner, you know, the Burke Aboriginal Medical Service. Similarly in Walgut, when we were there in Colorado, the health service, they know, they, they know straight away. Yeah, when you drill that stuff down and you think, okay, how does reading and writing impact on your health? It's really as simple as people being able to read the prescription on a medicine bottle. It really comes down to that. And if there's one thing in my life that I despair about on a regular basis is the fact that we've got Aboriginal mums and dads out there and grandparents that are actually administering medications, not just to themselves, but to to babies and young people. And they're committing that dosage um, to memory from what the doctor or the pharmacist has given them or told them. That is quite frightening when you think about it. And um, just being able to read and write and read what the dosage is on a medicine bottle has an enormous impact on, on the lives, not only of the people in the classroom, but their families across the board. We've also obviously now see ourselves in a pandemic with a with an enormous health crisis going on. What are some of the challenges faced by those with poor literacy skills during this time? Well, it's just getting the message or receiving the message. You know, how do you, and, and that's a big part of what we're doing now in Santa Teresa. The community out there at Ginger Porter, we stayed, we moved our staff into the community so they wouldn't have to go in and out. And that was at the request of the community for us to stay. It was a real toss-up of whether do we commence the second intake or do we we um, suspend it for a while? But the community wanted us to stay, and, and I'm so glad we did on a number of fronts. But at, at the moment, our staff and students out there are actually working with the clinic, working with the police, working with the governing body out there, and they've been putting together posters and really short films, getting the message out into the broader community. So they're assisting in that way. And, and the people with the low lips that are in the class can actually go out and they're out talking to the community about COVID-19 and how do you cope with it and getting that message out there. So it's really valuable. It'll be even more valuable, I reckon, when we're coming out of it to continue on on this literacy journey because it's just it has such an enormous impact. Like when you can read and write, you just take it for granted. You just think everyone can. And a lot of people are so good at uh, hiding it that you don't know that they can't. But it impacts on their life extraordinarily. Like uh, people can't get jobs. They can't get a driver's licence. You know, as I said, they can't read the prescriptions. So it's really, you know, what we hope for the risk of with this is that when people learn to write, we're hoping that we can get enough people in a community to become more literate in English that they'll value learning. That's what we're trying to achieve. So it's not actually about getting individuals literate. It's about changing that characteristic that could possibly be a community of low literacy to a community that values learning. So you've got to reduce low literacy to about 10% or 20% to achieve that. So what happened in Santa Teresa, when when they started to shut down the communities and stop people coming to and fro, One of the things that they wanted to stay there, along with the health service, the clinic, was the adult literacy campaign. So obviously that community, at a community level, or certainly at a leadership level in that community, really did begin to value adult education. So that was very pleasing. 
These past few months have been a time of great uncertainty for us all. What advice do you have for people who've found the isolation really difficult or have felt um, considerably stressed by the uncertainty of the times we're going through? Oh, you know, people really do have to hang tough at this point. It's really, it really is hard. I think at the beginning of our conversation today, you know, I was talking about how Aboriginal people have been living in social isolation for 230 years now, but we, we haven't had to live in social isolation from each other. We always had each other. So that's the tough part for us. In terms of, you know, many, many Aboriginal people have lived in social isolation from the broader community for such a long time, but in terms of being socially and economically isolated now, I think it's really, really hard for our communities and it's really tough. And Look, I'd do whatever I could for anybody. I, I answer my phone so often nowadays. My son the other day, I answered at 10 o'clock, you know, because someone was just ringing up just to see how I was going, you know. And, and he said, Dad, it just never stops. So I said, well, mate, you know, these times... These times are really hard for everyone. So I'd just say to people, look, hang, hang tough and draw on what you know best. And what we know best is how to survive. After what we've survived in the t- last 230 years, surviving this virus will be easy. On a more personal level, a lot of us are finding out a lot about ourselves during this time as well. And of course, there's the advice we give to others. But have there been things through this time that you've learnt about yourself? Yeah, well, look, I'm I'm the father of a a young daughter. She's only four and a half years old. And um, for me, many of us are workaholics. I'm not on my own. You know, I, I, I couldn't stand not doing any work. I couldn't stand just sitting around at home. I, I had to be out doing something. It was Saturday or Sunday, I'd be looking for a rally to go to or, or an Aboriginal exhibition of some sort or go and see a band. I just couldn't, couldn't not be doing something. And then because we've been locked in now for a couple of months, that's been extraordinary. That, that's two months. And they're probably two of the best months of my life because I've been able to, to be with her and read to her and, and, you know, do a bit of Montessori teaching with her around, you know, preparing for school. They're things that I would never have got to done. So, so I, I, you know, when I, I, always, I always think something, something good always comes out of something bad ultimately. And I think if I was going to ask people or talk about clinging to something, Cling to that, you know, cling to the fact that something always good comes out the other side. Um, and sometimes things like this are an opportunity. It's an opportunity to to get to know ourselves. It's an opportunity for Aboriginal people to, to really reconnect with their family. Um, that, that's been the bonus for me, to be able to reconnect with my family in, in a very, very different way than I probably have done for the last 40 years. Just finally tonight, we've really just touched on your amazing legacy, the number of lives you've touched. What do you hope others would take away from looking at the body of your life's work? Oh, I'd like them to think, gee, how lucky was that, you know? Um, I just feel so lucky and privileged um, just to be a part of that whole mob, you know, part of the 500,000, 600,000 Aboriginal mob that have stuck together, they've you know, they've, you know, even in the tough times, we've always had this amazing solidarity with each other. It didn't mean we always agreed. It didn't mean we didn't have arguments with each other. But we all, we we're all pulling in the same direction. We just had different roads to get to where we were going. But, but look, I, I don't, I don't want people to think anything of me. Like everything I've been involved in in my life, I've loved it. I haven't worked a day in my life. You know, when I say I'm, I'm a workaholic, I haven't worked a single day in my life as part of this struggle. It's just something that I love. I'm passionate about it. And when I see some of them young Aboriginal people out there and I hear them talking and, and representing us more, it makes me very proud. It makes me very, very proud because a lot of those people, they did come through places like Tramby. Now I see people that are very basic reading and writing level and I go back to their towns and I see them speaking up in their communities and not just about their rights but about 
our responsibilities as Aboriginal people. So when I see see that, I just feel so privileged that I was allowed into and to be a, a very small part of their lives. Uncle Jack, what a privilege to have had you on the show tonight. Thank you so much for your time and sharing all your wisdom with us. Thanks very much, Larissa. It's been a pleasure. Uncle Jack Beetson is the Executive Director of the Literacy for Life Foundation. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. A new anthology curated by Gomeroy poet and academic Alison Whittaker has highlighted the revival of First Nations poetry happening in Australia today. It's called Firefront, First Nations Poetry and Power Today and features some of the most powerful voices in the country, including academic Dr Chelsea Bond. Let's take a listen to her deeply personal essay exploring what it means to be a good ancestor both then and now. Dear Ancestor, Chelsea Bond, Homo erectus, people, cannibals, warriors, baboons, survivors, a real live gollywog, old songwoman, poor, miserable, half-starved, bottled-nosed caricatures of humanity, mob, brute man, Dad, gins, mother, waitresses, children, domestics, elders, Aborigines, ancestors. Dear Ancestor, of all the things you have been called, I will write to you in the name you must be known by. Ancestor. And I'll write to you via the relationship by which you were known to me and through me. My father's name was Vern Wadigo. He passed 11 years ago. His mother was Amelia Slocky. She passed three years ago. Her mother was Clara Williams. She passed before I was born. Her mother was Emily Jackie. And she was born in the middle of the century before last. Her father was Billen. They said he was the last of his tribe. They were wrong, as you well know. Nullianbai, Gulliban. We are still here now. But what does it mean to be here now? It certainly is a strange predicament to know oneself only as far back as that ancestor that they insisted, among other things, was the last of us. My body here, now, in its being, tells the truth about our ongoing existence, or at least it tries to, every damn day. I want to talk to truth, not about it. Rather, I want to talk to you truthfully, Ancestor. To speak truthfully, to externalise that internal dialogue, demands of us a public outing of our vulnerability. It's something that I've typically resisted, not because I prefer lies, but because I want something to be sacred, reserved just for us. But maybe too, I'm more familiar with the public truth-telling that relies too heavily upon strength and insisting upon our persistence as a people. I think I almost forgot that vulnerability was not weakness, but an expression of our humanity too, in this place, here, now. I remember when my dad passed away, I didn't just grieve the loss of him, I also mourned the loss of no longer being known as one of Vern's girls. For some reason, I thought that when he died, so too did my belonging, that my ancestry was somehow more faint. But it didn't die or fade. It was my enactment of it that had to change. It meant that when family gathered, I would not follow in behind him. I now would sit at the adult's table where he once sat. When my nana passed a few years later, I realised that I no longer had living elders in terms of my immediate family tree. When I grieved the loss of her, I also grieved the loss of answers to questions that I never took the time to ask. I grieved the loss of stories that are now just pieces of which I can no longer go back and check to restore them whole, to be retold in full. 
Throughout my life, my Aboriginal ancestry was known through them, their stories, their experiences and their connections to place. But they are gone. I am still here, now. It really is a most daunting prospect, the realisation of being the latest living ancestor in your family tree. For too many of our families, we find ourselves made elders before our time, simply because we are the last ones living here, now. To think of oneself in this way is not a hierarchical position within one's family tree. No, it is a reminder of our mortality and eternity, to be the next in regards to our proximity to that soil, the next to be returned to it, no longer as seed but as the root that sustains that age-old tree forevermore. Neither last or lost, but forever. The latest living ancestor, here, now, carries a responsibility not just of living, but to think deeply about what legacy will be left, for it is our living here now that will determine the strength of that tree. You see, they wanted so much for us to not be here. In fact, that is what they've always wanted. In being named Aborigines, they sought to remake us as a doomed people destined to die out, knowing us as anything but human. How does one thrive in a world that wishes us dead? I can't help but think of the buttress roots that are in abundance on Mount Tambourine that sustain ancient trees in the thinnest of soils. You see, those roots are as smart as they are strong. In seeking out the nutrients the tree needs, they grow taller above the soil rather than digging deep down into it. Not only do they buttress those age-old trees, but they too grow wide so as to support those weaker trees that don't have the same support. I think to be a good ancestor is to be like the buttress root. But if I'm honest with you, most days I'm not sure what that looks like here, now. I wish I could live in that future time where I could see whether I was the right kind of ancestor in the moment I was called to be in this place if indeed I was everything you asked of me. Maybe then you could tell me if I let you down when I couldn't see a brand new day. You could tell me if I failed in my failing to see possibilities in this place. Did I not have enough joy? Should I have laughed or danced more? Should I have rested more, learned more, given more? Should I have fought more? Just as the buttress root cannot go deep beneath the soil, nor can it climb to the canopy to see how high the tree it sustains will reach. I'm left to pretend that I know. I rely on the feeling of the force of those behind me. I too feel the weight of those I am meant to carry. Some days it feels too heavy. Some days it feels too lonely. Some days I'm tired of fighting of having to search out nourishment in this soil, of pursuing a thing called justice so stubbornly despite not yet knowing what it actually is. But I remind myself, those feelings of loneliness, hopelessness and uncertainty come from a degraded soil, not a degraded people. A soil that continues to underestimate the wisdom of our roots. This world will insist that you be a good Aborigine. It will lie to you about who you are and what is needed to sustain us as a people. But one thing I know here, now, is that no good has ever come from being a good Aborigine. The Aborigine in its good or bad state is always dying, lost and never real enough. But the Aborigine was never real in the first place. It is of their imagining not ours. We were made to be good ancestors. Good ancestors sustain the forest that they cannot clear. Good Aborigines, meanwhile, only ever sustain the institutions that insist upon our demise. And so I tell you this, my dear children, never be the good Aborigines they insist you be for it is in our being as ancestors here, now, that we are still here, now. Love from your mum. 
You've just heard from Research Fellow with the Indigenous Studies Research Network at Queensland University of Technology, Dr Chelsea Bond. And if you wish to hear more from some of the poets whose work is featured in Firefront, a new anthology of First Nations poetry and essays, you can hear them online at abc.net.au slash rn. Just find a way in the program menu. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. Join us again next week when we explore the unique history between Aboriginal people and the sport of boxing. Well, I guess it's the movement of the tent, the tents that were going around with the agricultural shows, you know, across the country as well and going into Aboriginal um, areas and and being spotted as a as a, you know as a tent boxer. I mean, you could have been picked up by Jimmy Shamans and and taken along and um, for the ride, so to speak. But the reality is that opportunity may have taken you onto the big smoke in places like Sydney or Brisbane and Melbourne and under the eye of some um, you know professional boxing trainers. So the opportunities were there, and for Aboriginal people, you know, from the time of the establishment of the protection and later on the welfare board, and I'm talking about New South Wales, but widely spread across the country, there was denied mobility for our people. There were denied opportunities on every aspect of life. I mean, and and, and most of our mob were confined on heavily restricted and um, controlled reserves and missions where every aspect of decisions in your life were taken away from you. But if you were able to get an opportunity to buy some freedom, um, through the boxing ring, well, you know, go for it. Well, I think it's the same thing as boxing overall. I mean, you look at rugby league and AFL today as, you know, that's the big attraction for our mob as far as sports and, you know, um, and the and the adulation they receive and, um, and certainly the opportunity. But in the past, neither of those codes until the 60s and late 60s and 70s actually opened their doors to give us a go. Boxing was different. I mean, and I, I, I probably hypothesise that the fact is, I'm not saying rugby league and AFL aren't tough games, but boxing people die. And the opportunities um, to fight um, Aboriginal people got far more of a degree of a go. And um, and we had some great champions. And as, a, as I um, highlighted that, um, you know, here we are that uh, 3% of the population and yet... Um, 15% of all Australian champions, title holders, have been Aboriginal, which is a remarkable statistic. That's all we have time for this evening, but to take us out, we'll leave you with some music from Blues and Roots duo Busby Maru. This song is taken from their 2017 album, Postcards from the Shell House, and is called Paint This Land. <laughs> <laughs> 